Hey, we are back and Tony's in the house with me. Tony, how are you? Hey man, good to be back. Super excited to be here. Same here. Yeah, so what's new with you? How's the Kit Mobility Challenge going? Actually, we just wrapped that up today we, and it went really, really well. Any highlights? Any? Yeah, we've had multiple different success stories. Actually, towards the end there, I was getting a lot of messages from folks telling me that they were really starting to feel the results in their life, which I think is just a really big turning point for a person. Because you, when you start a program, you know, the first thing you might feel as a result is you feel that the exercises get a little easier. Mm-hmm. But there's a big shift that happens when a person starts to feel those results show up in their life somehow. Yeah. And so I was getting some cool stories about people who, you know, one woman was telling me that um, she was able to walk up a hill better without pain. I was getting messages about being able to bend over and get things out of the cupboard without feeling pain that they used to have. So that's the kind of thing that really gets me excited as a coach. Yeah. And it's And it's why we ran the challenge for as long as we did, four weeks, so that people could have that experience as well. Yeah, that's so empowering. And I feel like once you make one change, it opens the possibility for new changes. Like if someone was reluctant to walk up a hill, and now suddenly that's an option available to them. Like maybe they're going to be more active. Maybe they're going to go outside more. You know, maybe they're going to spend more time with their kids. A hundred percent. And that that gets people excited. So, man, that's that's so good to hear. Yeah. So now, um, basically, we just see who wants to continue the journey with us. And so we're just going to have people, you know, probably join up and continue. And we're looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I think last episode we were talking about your weekend and you said you were going to go fly fishing. Have you been back out? I haven't. So unfortunately, so the season for the type of fly fishing that I like to do, the season closes. Most of the areas close October 15th and then we have some that remain open till October 31st. So let's just say this is the hardest time of year for me. Because (laughs) once the time change happens and it gets dark and now I have cabin fever and I'm not able to look forward to fishing quite as much, but I will get some opportunities come January 1st. A lot of places reopen. It's just that I have to go freeze my butt off to enjoy it. But I still will. (laughs) Yeah. Are you still like waiting in water at that that temperature? Yep. Still waiting in the water, just dressing warm and the fishing gets really slow. And you gotta, you really gotta grind it out. But it's nice to get out there on a winter day as well. Hey, man, there's something for everybody. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> that's cool, man. Yeah, the time change definitely messes me up every year. Every uh, year, and it feels every like year. it shouldn't. It's just, it's just one hour. Like, it, why it feels like such a just such a subtle thing, and it just totally changes everything. Yeah. Do you see like a change in your clients or your dojo members at this time of year because of it? Like, do you notice more pain or more that's um, interesting adverse effects or less motivation? Or I think I probably, I think more conversation comes up around staying motivated. Yeah. Come to think of it, and honestly, for myself, that's been that's been a struggle for me recently. And part of it is the time change, not getting outside is, you know, not getting outside as much or getting as much outdoor time that really affects me too. So this is the time of year where I have to have more 
internal conversations with myself to stay consistent with fitness. And actually, I was sick last week. So I'm over that now, still a little stuffing stuff, but really I feel back to good health. And I had missed my workouts. I had missed jujitsu. And so I went back to jujitsu for the first time last night and actually was pleasantly surprised. I thought it was going to be very rough. And once I got rolling, things were good and actually had the best practice I've had in a while because before that I was previously in a funk. But uh, last night was good. So back on track. Yeah. Kind of like the the challenge, like maybe what you needed was that shot of momentum that's going to then set you up for good decisions. Yeah. Going forward. Yep. I notice every time I get sick, I th- there's like a window, right? Where it's like when I've been consistent working out, I'm kind of addicted. Like I want to. I want to do my workout. I don't want to miss it. Like it feels really good. It's, it's, it's going well. And if I take enough time off that completely switches and like the first workout I'm dragging ass, like I I have to like, like you said, talk to myself, talk myself into it. And it's just like so much harder to get back to that place of momentum. I have the same experience. Well, I think that's a good segue actually when everything's going well, when you don't have pain, when you're doing the right things, you're sleeping well, you're working out, whatever it is, right? You're, you're being active. It's easier to continue that. It is. But when you get thrown off or you get in the habit of not doing those things, not checking those boxes, not being active, it gets harder and harder. And so I thought it would be really cool to discuss that because I think it's something that everybody can relate to, you know, whether you're someone that just hasn't been motivated for your entire life to go to the gym or to be active, or if you're somebody that's constantly active, but you get sidelined by an injury or you get COVID or you're traveling a lot for the holidays, which always throws me off like crazy or daylight savings time hits. (laughs) What does that do to you from like a health and fitness perspective? And then also, like, what can we do to get back to that good, therapeutic, feel-good level of activity? Sounds good. Let's do it. So uh, what do you notice for yourself, first of all? You've dealt with injury, um, and I think that, for me at least, is a very cool place to start because I was very active this year and then got sidelined by a knee injury. And... For me, it's been it's been kind of a tough uphill battle, uh, but I'm curious, like when you've been in that position, what's the first thing that you think to yourself? That's funny. I, I immediately just thought of something that a good friend of mine said to me years ago when we used to collaborate more and coach together. And she actually has five kids and they're all, they've all been very high level athletes. And I remember her saying to me, when you're injured, you have to know how to be injured. And I was like, that's interesting. And she had, you know, for years been engaged in helping to train her kids. And of course, injuries happen when you're an athlete. Yep. She said, you have to understand how to be hurt. And I was like, what does that mean? And just spending time around her and seeing how she coached and you know, how that unfolded when 
you know, one of her kids was injured. I learned a lot back then about how you have to behave when you have an injury. And number one, what comes to mind is that you can't actually stop, meaning you mm-hmm. can't stop moving. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really difficult place to navigate because if you get injured, especially if you have to go more mainstream medical, mainstream medical route with it, it's challenging because what generally happens is once you're injured, you are told to stop everything. Just shut mm-hmm. it down. If you hurt your knee or whatever it is, you're told that, okay, we have to immobilize you now. You you shouldn't move this because the thought process is you have to rest. You have to let time pass. You have to let it heal. Mm-hmm. And that's a really difficult thing to navigate because you really shouldn't stop for a number of different reasons. And in order to create a good healing environment for your body, immobilizing is not the best way to do that. So number one is you don't want to stop moving. And that might mean that you have to work with the rest of your body and not the injured area, at least to start. But then eventually you have to start moving the area of concern as well. Yeah. And why is it so important to keep moving? Like what is going on? Like why isn't rest doing what the doctor wants it to do? Well, so physically you actually need movement to deal with the injury, right? So we basically have all been taught that, you know, when you get injured, and you have swelling, right? We want to manage the swelling. And so, you know, the old prescription is rice, you know, where you just basically take your knee or whatever it is, you throw some ice on it, maybe some compression, maybe you elevate it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, what we now know is that movement promotes better management of fluid dynamics after an injury anyways. And it's actually movement that by design allows us to inhibit some of the pain that we're feeling. And that's more of a brain-based concept. So you can actually move to create healing and move to inhibit some of that pain. And that sets you up for better healing versus completely immobilizing and laying on the couch waiting for time to pass. But the other piece of that is more mental and emotional. Because if you're sitting on the couch completely immobilized because of an injury, the less you move, the more likely it is that you're going to start to feel depressed about your state. Mm -hmm. And so the lack of movement and then the depression that can come over us from a lack of movement is really a lousy recipe for dealing with anything. Yeah. It's like a downward spiral. It is. I am noticing some of those tendencies in myself uh, because I'm not sure if I told this story here, um, but basically I was starting jujitsu, super excited, had been doing some one-on-one lessons and some group lessons and like trying to pick which gym I was going to, you know, commit to. And I went to a evening uh, class and I had been 
I didn't sleep well the night before. I was kind of stressed about it. I was really busy with a lot of work. I had also increased my activity because I was like, oh, I need to get in even better shape for jujitsu. And I just was, I was really dragging, didn't want to go, but I was like, no, I committed to going. I'm going to, I'm going to show up and do this. And I get there and we're doing a warm up. Have you done the warm up where it's like tag your toes? Tag your yeah. toes. Yeah, we used to call um, that slap tag. Slap tag. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's all about positioning and footwork and, and cool stuff. And I was really into it. And something happened where I just stepped on the mat wrong. Like it wasn't like, you know, someone put me in a position and, and I didn't tap or, you know, it wasn't like the right. contact of the sport. I literally just stepped on the mat wrong. And, uh, you know, my knee just kind of like gave out. Um, and it was all wobbly and painful and sharp and I sat it out, didn't know what was going on. Anyways, uh, fast forward, the doctors that I saw were basically like, yeah, rice, like you need time off. Yep. Uh, don't move. I had like crutches for the first week just to like stay off of it. Cause it was still pretty painful. And then as it got better, I was able to move around and do stuff, but I wasn't I wasn't actively working on my lower body and finally uh, linked up with a PT and basically what she realized or what she found out was I had been, I'd been walking, I'd been working, I'd been carrying things like I'd been functional, but my right leg, my, where my right knee was injured was just, I was walking with a, a completely different gait. I was staying off of certain positions that were painful. I was actively avoiding using it when I was holding weight. And like now it's like I do single leg drills and like the stability is just gone compared mm. to my left leg. And so, you know, it wasn't just the injury itself. It was the fact that I was staying off of it unconsciously even like right. I was trying to be active and moving where, you know, it's like six months later and I'm like, man, I didn't think I'd still be dealing with this and still be trying to work around this and so I say all of that just to say like I can relate to that struggle and it's hard when you know what you're trying to do to make it better is more difficult because it's painful or because it's you know cranky that day or or whatever very true it's been six months for your knee that's six months I mean July so that feels maybe five Wow. That's, that's uh, it's such a bummer that that happened. I had a knee injury in jujitsu actually when I first started. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how that stuff can happen when you first start. And I, and I really do think that that's a lot of that is, is based on threat. You know, you're in a new environment, mm -hmm. your brain and body isn't quite sure, you know, especially for you, like with the mat, I've been standing on mats for over 20 years now because previously my experience in wrestling but when you stand on a mat it's very it's a very different surface yeah you know and that's uh it's such a bummer and honestly it took my knee uh, when i got injured five years ago now it took my knee about five months mm -hmm. five months before i felt confident again and i was back in there but but you want to know something tony so when i injured my knee and i i partially tore my mcl I did a thousand knee circles the first day I heard it. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, so thank goodness I know this, right? I've, I've been through this and I've, and I, 
I understand that, yes, I need rest and yes, I have to be careful. And I was actually using compression and stuff because it felt good actually Mm -hmm. on my knee. But I also knew that I had to move. And so what I was able to do was some targeted drills for my knee, but I was just really cautious and made sure that I wasn't moving into a painful range of motion. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me. It really catapulted me forward the first four to eight weeks in the recovery process because every single day I still moved my knee even though I partially tore my MCL. And I did it thoughtfully, right? I did it thoughtfully. It wasn't reckless and you do have to be smart about it, but that really helped me. Yeah. What's cool about, you know, since I've been working with you is is learning about the assessment process and being like, it's so, it's so weird. One day I have full range of motion, no pain. Another day it's like I, I have a quarter range of motion and, you know, it just wants to like flare up and that's frustrating. But now I can like think about it and be like, okay, is, is there something that I'm doing that's making this worse? Or is there something I can do that can actually make it better, make it easier? Yes, exactly. They're using that kind of threat bucket lens to look at it. You know, that's, that's really, really useful. Decreased threat generally improves performance, decreases pain, right? And finding those drills that move the needle in the right direction. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. And so like outside of an acute injury, because honestly, I was thinking about it. I was like, man, we could do a whole podcast about that, you know? Right. But outside of that, there's also chronic pain. And then there's also just people who have uh, lower activity levels or who only move in certain planes of motion, right? All they do is they cycle or all they do is they squat and they never deadlift or something, right? I mean, there's different levels of of inactivity and also um, someone might be active, and I'm doing air quotes, (laughs) in one way, but has actually been neglecting other forms of activity or something that could be more well-rounded, right? Right. So- if someone's been avoiding certain movement patterns, it sounds like it's only making that problem or it's, it might even be creating new problems, right? It might be making that problem worse, but it also might be creating new, new problems. So I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, you're, you're hundred percent right. So when we think about, when we think about a person and their competency to move, I think about it visually in my head as a person and they have a box around them. We call it the movement box. Mm-hmm. And the movement box basically contains all of your movement options, everything that you're able to do as a person. And when you get injured and it causes you to move differently or move less, or you have chronic pain and it causes you to move differently and move less, over time, that movement box continues to shrink. And so as the movement box shrinks, that basically represents your movement capacity, okay, your ability to move your movement options as becoming less and less and less. The problem with that is as your movement box shrinks, you start experiencing the world differently from a sensory perspective, and your brain goes without certain inputs and gets less activation. And as we've been talking about with, you know, the threat bucket education, it's all about safety 
when it comes to movement, your brain wants to feel as safe as possible so that it can now grant you the ability to move well. But it also comes down to prediction. Good movers are people who can predict their environment better than the next person. So as your movement box shrinks, your ability to predict the external environment gets worse. And that raises threat levels in terms of as far as your brain and nervous system is concerned. And when threat goes up, by design, we start losing the ability to move at a certain capacity because your brain wants to protect you. It wants to keep you safe at all times. So it's really a built-in safety mechanism. And all this is happening very unconsciously. So this is why people go years without understanding that their movement box is shrinking. And then one day, whether it's an injury or a life event that shows them, hey, you can't move a certain way anymore, it can be very surprising. Yeah. And then comes the the frustration or the depression. But ideally, instead of going down that kind of a negative cycle of a shrinking movement box, you know, ideally, like you were doing a thousand knee circles on day one of an injury. Right. What is the first thing that someone should do to try to like break that cycle? For me, the thing that I have to do that really helps is that's what I was describing where I immediately start to move. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that could be with the area that is of concern, but that it could also be with the rest of your body. And for me, that's very, very important because I know that if I move, in some way, it's also going to inhibit the pain that I feel. And because I'm into the brain and the nervous system, I also understand that with my injury event that I described with my MCL, Mm -hmm. I probably didn't injure it as bad as I thought I did. And that's really important for me is that I come back to what I know about basic pain neuroscience For that particular injury, it probably wasn't as uh, serious as it felt. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful that I know that pain neuroscience stuff because it's validation for me. So as I start to move, I gain confidence with that, even though it comes with its ups and downs. Because even though I did a thousand knee circles on that first day, guess what? The next day I couldn't walk. I had to start over again. Because I was so tight and I was so stiff and I was responding to all of that inflammation that was starting to happen. Mm -hmm. But I just got to work again. And you just have to keep going and you have to do what feels good to you. And for me, that helps me mentally. That helps me emotionally. Not to say that there were definitely times where emotionally I would be down. Yeah. But those are the times where you have to pick yourself up and keep doing some movement because movement will really serve us well. It really will. Yeah. And you know, the devil's in the details, I'm sure. Right. Is all movement good movement? So in the case of an injury and pain, no, it's not so easy that you can just move any way that you want and accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. That comes full circle back to the assessment process. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important. Anybody can do the assessment process, by the way, because people might 
hear that and go, oh, well, I'm not a physical therapist or I'm not a strength and conditioning coach or, you know, a massage therapist, but anybody can do it because all I'm really talking about is checking in with your body, pausing for long enough to test how you feel and let that guide you. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't feel right or it causes you pain, exacerbates an issue, then you avoid that for now. Mm-hmm. But then you move to maybe a different body area or do something that feels better. What if um, pain is not what's holding someone back? What if someone just hasn't been active, wants to become more active, wants to move better? Where would they start? Well, you have to start with taking action. And that's the hard part because, and I talk about this a lot with members, people think that motivation is what they need. And it's very difficult because not everybody's going to be motivated to begin to move. And in fact, motivation just comes and goes, right? It just, some days it's there, some days it's not. I just had a conversation yesterday with one of our members actually who messaged me and said, I'm just not feeling motivated like I was before to do my program. Mm -hmm. And I had to remind her like, hey, remember our conversations early on, you have to take action first. And by taking action, it will bring you to a place where you can get some kind of result that you can attach to. And then once you get that result, even if it's not a big result, that's when motivation shows up out of nowhere. Motivation leads you to taking more action. And the cycle continues. It's a loop. Mm -hmm. So I always have to remind people that you have to be willing to take some kind of action first. And it can be really simple. It doesn't have to be huge. If you got out of the habit of going for daily walks, you can start that habit again. And you can start with daily walks and let that manifest into something more as you're ready to take on more. Mm -hmm. But by taking action first, that's what's key because motivation is just going to come and go And the important thing for people to understand is, especially when you haven't been exercising for a long time and you have that tendency to compare yourself to others, people who are being successful with fitness are not operating on motivation. They're operating on habit. And when motivation, like for me, when motivation shows up, I'm like, oh, awesome. Where'd this come from? Yeah. Like, where was this for the last six months? <laughs> and then I, I, you know, I harness the power of that for a little bit. Maybe I get excited about a new, something new I'm learning in jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And now it's all about that for a few weeks. But it will go. The, the feeling of motivation will go away and the cycle will continue. But I have to keep continuing as well. Yeah. I don't know if you've followed much of uh, Dan John. A little bit. He'd call them punch the clock workouts. And it's like, you know, some days you don't want to do it or like you're not feeling it or maybe you do it, but it's just it's a crappy workout for whatever reason. He's like, I call those punch the clock workouts like you just come in, you punch in, you do it, come out. There's nothing glamorous. It's just the act of getting in and out. Yes. And I I thought that was pretty useful. I, I like that. I like that because honestly, for the last couple of months, I've just been punching the clock. Yeah. And and that's okay, And that's okay, But. You know, I've backed off on on my frequency a little bit. Fly fishing might have something to do with that in the fall mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, and now I'm starting to ramp it up again. 
what are you seeing with people who, if they've been thrown off their game or they just haven't been active long term, are, are there trends that you're noticing with them that's different from, you know, someone who has a more active lifestyle or is an athlete or anything like that? Yeah. Well, those types of trends I notice more when I'm trying to help those people with movement problems or pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The folks that don't have a solid foundation in fitness, they're usually harder to help. And what, what I mean by that is my tools don't work as good. And so I've got to consider that. And so it's, it's interesting to see the difference, um, how things work with, with different people. Because if I get a very well-trained person, maybe they've had you know, an athletic background, they're currently engaged in some form of fitness, mm-hmm. they're usually easier to help in the short term when they're experiencing some kind of limitation or pain. And I think it's just based on their movement competency being better. Whereas the other folks that don't have that foundation, it's more challenging, I think, because they don't have as many movement options to work with. Right. And so you're you're doing a lot of teaching to try to get them to improve essentially their coordination. And because of that, all the cool tools that I do know how to use are harder to work with because you're just you're just working with less competency in terms of movement. The movement box concept is super powerful because as you were talking about that I was just immediately imagining the movement box and it's like oh right they don't they don't have that range of motion they're not able to right do a full body weight squat or right whatever it may be and like maybe that's something that you would have used for a more active individual that would have targeted the problem more directly. Yeah. And in coming back to how we look at things based on the brain, basic movement might be more threatening for that individual. Mm. And so when you go to load their body in some way, if their brain cannot predict the outcome of that loading, something can be threatening to them. And that can make it harder to help. Man, it's crazy how fundamental that threat bucket is it's like every everything you do either adds or peels off layers of threat yes (laughs) it's true yeah so do you have an example of someone that was in that position where it was like harder for you to help them because of of their more limited movement i do um thinking about multiple different experiences that I had with people, past clients. And actually the one that came to mind first was actually a woman who was working with me because she was in chronic pain. And it's an interesting story because the woman was a division one athlete at one point in her life and moved very well, had an excellent foundation in fitness did all the things, strength training, you name it. And over time, her movement box shrank because of multiple surgeries that she had that Mm. caused her to move differently. And there were pain issues kind of wrapped up in things. And so over the course of quite a long time, we're talking years and years and years, her movement box shrank to the point where 
all the different interventions that she was trying to use to help her get out of chronic pain led her into more of a clinical environment where now she wasn't being challenged enough in terms of her movement. And by accident, over a number of years, she became more and more deconditioned because she put much more focus on finding the right intervention to help with her pain. The problem with this, and it happens to a lot of people, the problem with this is that when you go the clinical route and you start looking for interventions to help with pain, those things don't have conditioning that go with them, fitness that go with them. So if your body is getting deconditioned at the same time that you're trying to resolve pain, it can backfire on you because of what we just discussed with your brain always wanting to predict your, your environment, right? And threat levels go up when your movement box shrinks. What happened to this woman was every time she tried to come back to foundational fitness, because we did talk about this. This was a very intelligent person with a lot of experience in movement. And when we had these conversations, she knew this was happening. And we would talk about it. And the problem was, every time she tried to come back to general fitness, her body was rejecting fitness. And so she would load her body, and it might feel good in the moment. And then 24 hours, 48 hours later, it would backfire. She would be yeah. saying, all that stuff we did felt good. Then I went home. I, I did my homework exercises for my pain. Things felt excellent. And then, you know, a couple of days later, everything implodes. I'm back to square one. That sounds so frustrating. Very, very frustrating. And this, this is a story that I've heard from many people. But this one really stands out to me because that constant trying to get out of the cycle and get back to general fitness because you know you need it, but then getting rejected from that that causes you to then try to go and find the next intervention for helping with your pain. And what happens is you become so deconditioned that all of a sudden the interventions you're using for pain, they now don't work either. Or you get very temporary relief. So it's a really, really vicious cycle. It's a really vicious cycle. And so there's so many different ways to potentially deal with that. It's it's a journey. It's a journey for sure. And and you have to be you have to understand again like we're always talking about how to assess what you're doing to make sure that it's the right thing for you, but then you're also needing to really search for your minimal effective dose. Mhm. Mm we talked a little bit about fuel issues. Yep. Fuel comes into that big time because if you don't have the fuel capacity, for what you're trying to do, everything backfires because of that. So it is, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. And I find that a lot of people get trapped in that cycle, especially the ones who are in more chronic pain and they're looking for an answer somewhere. Yeah. So in that situation, I imagine it took a lot more focus and coaching to get her to a better place. Do you recall if there was like a breakthrough moment of some sort or was yeah, it just it was, slow and steady the whole way? Well, so it was, it's slow and steady. And actually we don't, we don't work together currently. We actually had to stop working together when we closed our studio. But honestly, you mentioned the breakthrough moment. 
the breakthrough moment for both of us was actually learning what was going on, right? Like what was actually, why was this happening? Because we initially were just looking at it as, oh, we're using the wrong exercises. It's just not the right thing yet. And, and she was a good friend of mine. And so she would message me and be like, hey, I tried acupuncture. Like, I think it went okay. You know, I, I then tried this other person that helped me with these corrective exercises. And, you know, the story was always the same. I, I think it went okay. It felt good until it backfired. Mm-hmm. And so for us, the big moment actually was figuring out what was actually happening with this cycle, this cycle that she was in. And that came from both of us continuing our education to understand that we came to a place to understand that she was really experiencing a massive fuel deficit on top of the fact that over the course of 20 years, her movement box shrank to a point where now even the things that might be considered right for her, her body was rejecting. Do you have a term for that cycle of decline, I'll call it, movement box decline? I call it the pain vortex when, really? I talk, when I talk to our members. Yeah. Yeah. I call it the pain vortex. I talk about it a lot and I give examples just like we talked about where you're, you're in this vortex and your movement box has shrunk and you're, you're seeking out the next best thing, right? And, and there's a lot of behavioral things that get wrapped up in this too. Because it's very frustrating and it, it causes people to go and try all these different things. These are always the people that tell me I've tried everything, but nothing works. Mm-hmm. They're in that pain vortex and they basically list every single thing they've ever tried. And it's like all the you know, popular therapies and stuff that a person, might, a person might try. In fact, we just got an amazing video testimonial from a woman recently who is one of our members. And... She literally, in the video testimonial, was saying, I tried this and I tried that. She had this whole list of everything from acupuncture to different myofascial therapies to traditional physical therapy, you name it, dry needling. It was all in there. And um, she went on to say, what's so amazing is not only the education that this program has provided me, but I was able to stop my search for all these different things that I used to basically just bounce around and do those things looking for temporary relief, I was able to stop my search for those things because Taylor finally got me to realize that I needed to be more grounded and actually focus on a program because she had never actually done a program that had all the things in it that we like from the strength training to the balance to the mobility, just a nice balanced approach. So because she stayed the course, she then started getting great results because her body was starting to be conditioned. She was getting that baseline fitness foundation that she never had when she was doing those other therapies. So those other therapies might offer her something temporarily, but they didn't stick. Mm -hmm. Once you have the foundational framework, then all those other things that you try that help you feel better and move better, they have a better tendency to stick in the long term. So what I'm imagining is sort of like the opposite of the pain vortex, right? Like the mm-hmm. movement box is getting bigger. Right. The, the threat level is getting uh, 
I always say threat level like it's the office, you know, uh, yeah. threat, threat level midnight. Yeah. <laughs> the threat bucket, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Like the threat bucket is decreasing. The movement box is increasing. Yes. And that's a virtuous cycle that is now having a greater impact. Yeah. And you're able to take on more. At that point, you are becoming more resilient yeah. and you're becoming healthier. And that's to me really what we're doing when we train. We're becoming more resilient people. We're able to handle stress better in all forms, especially physical. So it's it's interesting to think about it that way. So if someone's experiencing pain, and I'll just say shoulders so that I can avoid talking about my knee for the whole podcast. Uh, <laughs> but like, let's say like someone's experiencing pain in their shoulder or whatever it may be, and they're looking for a shoulder intervention. What therapy can I use to fix my shoulder? Is it possible that they should be looking at like a more well-rounded general fitness approach in addition to that? Yeah, it, it is. And, and honestly, that's, that's the problem with separating rehab from training. Mm. We think that when we're hurt, we have to go a rehab route. And when we're not hurt, we have to go a training route. And see, over you know years of doing this as a coach, they're the same thing to me now. They're not different. It's just that we adjust the volume, the intensity, the repetitions, the way that we're doing something might have to be modified if we're going to be more mindful of, a, of an injury or pain that you have. But there is no such thing to me now as training and rehab. It's, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they shift 100% to rehab. So if your shoulder hurts, yes, you have to seek out some targeted solutions for shoulder issues. And maybe that means working directly with your shoulder. Maybe that means you know, doing some, some other things with the whole body until your shoulder's ready to receive direct work. But you have to also continue some level of fitness. You don't want to separate those things. And there's always something that you can do without causing any um, negative issues with the pain. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage people to have that mindset rather than an all-in mindset where it's like, well, if I have shoulder pain, I'm just not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Right? It, you have to train your fitness and train your conditioning at the same time as respect your shoulder issue. And that's where you have to be thoughtful. It's going to be a process. You have to make smart decisions. If someone is training, or if they're not training, but they're, they're wanting to get started, either way, how do they know what a balanced fitness regimen is? Um, let me say this again. I've heard of like the functional movement screen, for example, mm -hmm. uh, as a way of uh, assessing like how people move in different planes of motion, uh, stability in different planes of motion. Is that, is that something that you used to assess, you know, not to assess uh, threat, but to assess someone's just overall movement capacity? I used to use it years ago. Actually, that exact screen was one of the first things that I pursued with continuing education. Okay. And that was about somewhere between 12 and 15 years ago. I don't use it anymore. And it's, it's not that I don't like it. It actually is a useful tool for a lot of coaches. But for me, 
I've worked with so many people at this point and I've learned that everybody is so different. It's very difficult for me to hold them to movement standards. Mm -hmm. I just want to work with the person who's in front of me. And I know that that can be different on any given day based on so many different factors, thinking about that threat bucket. Mm -hmm. So I don't use that kind of a screen anymore. You know, going back to what you originally asked, how does a person know if the training program is balanced? If you're just starting, you don't know. You don't know that. Not yet. Right? That's going to take that's going to take some practice, some understanding. You really have to have, you know, more experience to understand if what you're doing is balanced, but I always encourage people to come full circle back to how do you feel? Hmm. Because the problem with fitness, the way that we've been the way that we have been taught through the fitness industry is to ignore so many feelings, mm-hmm. right? And, and you can actually understand whether or not something's working for you or not just simply by how do you feel. And most people don't ask that question. They don't ask that question. So I would say at the beginning, you're not expected to know if it's balanced for you, but you have to ask yourself, do I feel good from this? And the rest kind of just answers itself as you you get experience and you you keep going. This this question has been gnawing at my mind for for a while since we first started talking. Uh, is there ever a situation where you're doing something that doesn't feel good, but is good for you, or is is feeling always like north is true north a hundred percent of the time? That's a great question. I've had some really funny experiences. I asked myself that same question. Hmm. I've had some really interesting experiences where people tell me that something feels amazing and we go and test their response to it and it did exactly the opposite. Hmm. And this is just one of those things that makes me go, oh man, brains are so weird. <laughs> because you know, something that comes to mind is like, people who repetitively are like foam rolling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I foam roll, you know, 20 minutes before I train and, you know, it, I do my whole body and it's like, it feels so good. That's good for me. Right. And so my response is, well, I don't know, let's test it. Yeah. And I actually did this on our recent, uh, in our recent hip mobility challenge, because the question always comes up, like, where does foam rolling fit into your program? Because we don't, we don't have foam rolling in there. So it's a great educational opportunity for why. Um, and it's not that I'm like against it necessarily in any way. It's just that I'd rather spend my time doing more productive things. So you had a really fun recent experience with some of the um, people in the challenge because we did some foam rolling on a live call. And people are saying, oh, this feels great. And some of those folks who did all the foam rolling, who reported it feeling really good, retested with the different movement assessments we were using mm-hmm. and they regressed on every single one of them. Wow. Some others some others did not. Some others improved. And I did the demonstration on myself and I foam rolled. I was showing them how like foam rolling like one side of your body might be what your brain might want versus both sides. And I got very interesting results too that were different than what you would suspect. In fact, like I was like rolling on my right hip 
And it, uh, I started to give the example of like, some people like to roll to create pain, right? Yeah. They, you know, it, it hurts so good kind of thing. Other people yeah. like the gentle approach. I was showing them how my response was varying based on the approach that I used. But it was just so interesting for people to learn that something that they thought was helping them actually was regressing them, even though it feels good. And so it's, it's, it's just that I always have to come back to, okay, we want to know what this is doing for us. Let's test it. Yeah. Now that I have also had the experience where we used pain to help a person get out of pain. This is weird. This is I'm bizarre. Listening. Yeah, this is bizarre. <laughs> okay, so when it comes to your brain and your sensory systems, you you have you respond very differently to different types of sensations. And so many times, more than I could possibly remember at this point, we have used pain to help a person decrease their pain. And an example of that would be taking like a uh, like a needle and I'm just thinking about somebody with an old scar because oftentimes we're doing sensory work around people's old scars because they they don't feel things accurately around an old surgical scar, for example. Interesting. Okay. So you could test and find out which sensations do they not feel. And, you know, we would do that if it was one-on-one. But uh, one of the things that we've done is we've used the, it's called crude touch, where you are using a tool of some kind to create discomfort. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's an excruciating pain, but it doesn't feel good to be poked with a needle. But because of the way their brain was responding to that and the the different pathways that were activated and the different brain areas that were activated from the crude touch, it actually was the thing that helped them decrease their pain. So you would assume if I poked you with a needle, it was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it could be actually exactly what you need according to your brain. <laughs> very weird yeah yeah i'm just thinking about uh i forget for where this is from but there, there's some sort of like a comedic saying where it's like oh yeah like if your like toe hurts or something just like you know smash your thumb with something <laughs> you won't notice it as much you know <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about a couple summers ago I was at, uh, we were at our friend's house. We we're doing a workout together with our friends. My buddy's got this chin up bar under his deck and we're, we're doing, uh, we're doing pull-ups and stuff. And one of our friends had a really bad, um, hamstring injury, uh, like a couple months before and the pain was still lingering. She wasn't fully healed yet. She's just doing what she can. She's ripping out pull-ups on the pull-up bar and she, uh, had a misstep coming off the bar, falls off the bar, lands on the ground outside. And like, uh, basically there was like, we were on uh, next to a deck and just a piece of wood nailed her in the tailbone. And we were like, oh no, because we knew (laughs) it looked like it hit near her hamstring. And we knew she, we all knew she had the hamstring. She's a tough lady. She stands up and she's like, you're not going to believe this. And we're like, what? And she's like, my hamstring pain's gone. (laughs) we're dying laughing and i'm thinking i'm like oh boy i better think about the neurology of this okay let's see she hit her she hit her sacrum okay so that's that's gonna you know share the sensory distribution to the part of her hamstring that 
that was hurting her and maybe her brain was responding to you know the the crude touch and boom before you know it she she has no hamstring pain we're dying laughing but that's what that makes me think of <laughs> yeah yeah that's funny it's like yeah if you want to decrease your pain just hurt yourself somewhere else <laughs> yeah yeah seriously that's funny uh, i'm guessing you don't actually recommend that as a <laughs> i don't but i've given out many homework drills to people who are are dealing with pain issues that include some form of crude touch yeah yeah which is really fascinating so one of the interventions my pt was using uh, just a couple of times was dry needling uh-huh and this is something I was not familiar with. So if you're listening and you don't know what it is, it's basically they're using needles and they insert the needle in muscle tissue, right? And they leave it inserted, but they kind of draw it in and out at different angles. So it's not like acupuncture where you're, you know, placing a needle and kind of leaving it, right? right. It's like going, it's go, kind of like a tattoo or something, except it's in, it's subdermal, right? It's mm -hmm. inside. Uh, your skin and it's going in and out. And I will tell you, it is an extremely unpleasant experience. Um, but I do wonder if it functioned somewhat as a crude touch. hundred <laughs> percent, dude, hundred percent. You know? <laughs> you're, you're, you're thinking, you're thinking like an applied neurology guy. Now you have to retest that next time you do it, see how you respond immediately afterwards, test your knee mm -hmm. and you'll get some immediate feedback on whether or not that stimulus is, is useful for you or not. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I know we sort of jumped around a lot uh, regarding, you know, activity, lack of activity, pain. Um, is there something that we're leaving on the table? I think we hit it. I, th I think we hit it. You know, just to reiterate the idea, just because this comes up in my life every single day, the difference between you know, thinking you need to go a rehab route versus a fitness route, it's so important to realize that you don't really want to fully separate those things in your mind. If you're in pain and you have a specific pain issue and an injury, you know, you might think that you need a program that is 100% specific to your pain needs. But in reality, you're going to benefit a lot from maintaining your fitness, continuing to condition your body. And the biggest thing that I see with people who are constantly messaging me, like in my DMs, for example, asking me for an ankle program or a knee program or a shoulder program, is when I ask them what else they're currently doing, their answer is usually nothing because I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage people to keep moving. Keep moving in the ways that you know how. And if you have to seek out help, you can do that. And that's a good thing. But keep moving because in the end, it's going to serve you better. It's going to help you recover faster. It's going to make sure that your movement box doesn't shrink over time while you're also trying to deal with the pain issues that you're currently facing. Yeah. Yeah. And I just have to say this because I want to come back to this at some point, but I think about like geriatrics and how so many of like the mortality uh, increases are due to their movement box decreasing, right? It's like, yes, they can't walk upstairs, they fall, they break their hip, then they can't move even more. And, you know, the cycle continues. So from a long term perspective as well, 
I feel like valuing the movement box is something I'm taking away from this and just, you know, being proactive about it, regardless of, you know, what season you're in in life. For sure. Totally. We got to come back at some point and do a podcast on balance, like literally the quality of balance. That's what I was just thinking of because of how important balance is. It's literally a prerequisite to everything. And the problem is when you're young, you don't think you need to train your balance. And then all of a sudden you lose your balance at some point later on in life and just start thinking about it. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks, Tony. This has been an awesome conversation. And thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more, please follow the podcast, check out our website and dojo and come along for the ride. I promise you'll learn valuable lessons and build a tool set that will help you keep training pain-free for years to come.